Loving God, fountain of every blessing, open us to your life-giving word and fill us with your Holy Spirit so that living water may flow through our hearts, a spring of hope for a thirsty world. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Our reading today comes from Isaiah 52, 1 through 13. Awake, awake, put on your strength, Zion, put on your splendid clothing, Jerusalem, your holy city, for the uncircumcised and unclean will no longer come into you. Shake the dust off yourself, rise up, sit enthroned, Jerusalem, loose the bonds from your neck, captive daughter Zion. The Lord proclaims, you are sold for nothing, and you will be redeemed without money. The Lord God proclaims, long ago my people went down to reside in Egypt. Moreover, Assyria has oppressed them without cause. And now what have I here, says the Lord? My people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, says the Lord. And continually, all day long, my name is despised. Therefore, my people will know my name on that day. I'm the one who promises it. I'm here. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of a messenger who proclaims peace, who brings good news, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God rules. Listen, your lookouts lift their voice. They sing out together. Right before their eyes, they see the Lord returning to Zion. Break into song together, you ruins of Jerusalem. The Lord has comforted his people and has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in view of all the nations. All the ends of the earth have seen our God's victory. Depart, depart. Go out from there, unclean, don't touch. Get out of that place, purify yourselves, carriers of the Lord's equipment. You won't go out in a rush, nor will you run away because the one going before you is the Lord. Your rear guard is the God of Israel. Look, my servant will succeed. He will be exalted and lifted very high. This is the word of the Lord. I hope everyone was listening as attentively as Hattie was. <laughs> very attentive. Our reading continues with uh, Romans chapter 10. Siblings, my heart's desire <clears throat> is for Israel's salvation. That's my prayer to God for them. I can vouch for them. They are enthusiastic about God. However, it isn't informed by knowledge. They don't submit to God's righteousness because they don't understand his righteousness, and they try to establish their own righteousness. Christ is the goal of the law, which leads to righteousness for all who have faith in God. Moses writes about the righteousness that comes from the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith talks like this. Don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will go down into the region below, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message of faith we preach. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you're in your heart you have faith that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Trusting with heart... Trusting with the heart leads to righteousness, and confessing with the mouth leads to salvation. The scripture says all who have faith in him won't be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord is Lord of all who gives richly to all who call on him. All who call on the Lord's name will be saved. So how can they call on someone they don't have faith in? And how can they have faith in someone they haven't heard of? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce 
the good news. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. At the beginning of last semester, Will and I went to a training out in Seattle for the Our Whole Lives curriculum, which is a comprehensive and inclusive sex ed curriculum designed by the United Church of Christ and the Unitarian Universalist Association. While the training and this curriculum is good news in and of itself for those like myself who were raised within the bonds of purity culture, that is not what I'm going to talk about tonight. What I want to share with you was the story from one of our trainers. I think his name was Chris. Pretty sure his name was Chris. We're going to go with Chris. I don't know much about Chris personally, but I'm going to assume based on how he was talking and the way that he was presenting that he has been Unitarian Universalist for his whole life. And he told us this story offhand that wasn't really related to much we were talking about, um, about a friend of his. He's known this friend for many years, but maybe after a gap of not seeing him for a while, he ran into him again. And the friend said something along the lines of, I am so angry with you. I am so angry that this whole time you knew me, you also knew that there was a God who loved me and you never told me. Chris, I imagine, like myself, was is wary of this E-word of evangelism. It has been equated with so much violence and harm in history that simply sharing the hope of being loved by God, not to convert, not to force an idea down someone's throat, but to share what has given us freedom is something to be afraid of or ashamed of. And while I recognize the history of harm, I must also recognize that this word, euangelion, or evangelism, or to evangelize, is lifted up too many times in scripture to completely ignore it. So in light of our unease, what might it mean to reclaim this word as a community? Will lifted up last week that the most honest definition of evangelism is simply to proclaim good news. Now, neither Will nor I invented this idea. This definition of evangelism and much of the New Testament that writes about sharing the good news, this thing we call gospel, is not an original Christian idea. It's not just a Jesus thing. It originates in Judaism, in the religion of Judaism. There are two very important things that Christians need to know and remember about Jesus and about Paul and pretty much everyone else in the New Testament, that they are all Jewish and that the ideas that we today proclaim as uniquely Christian were not invented by Jesus or Paul, but were Jewish ideas. The Christian narrative historically has suggested that Jesus was bringing something new, something better to ancient Judaism, but that isn't a very fair assessment. I would say it's actually branching into anti-Semitism, to say so. For example, the concept of a Messiah is a Jewish idea. The basis for the new covenant that Paul talks about can also be found in the book of Jeremiah. And gospel or good news proclaimed can be found in the Old Testament, like in the Isaiah passage we read tonight and we read last week. Jesus, like most religious reformers, was not trying to create a new religion but dig into the truths present in their current religion that people had forgotten about or interpreted differently or in some cases abused. Jesus was not against the law or the temple but simply its first century leadership. He was not the only Jewish man to care about justice or the poor and the marginalized or women. He did not invent teaching in parables. This was a Jewish way of teaching. Neither Paul nor Jesus were Christians. So when we talk about proclaiming the good news, 
we have to consider the implications of this word and the context with which they use it, not just the context with which we hear it. They weren't Christians. So a definition that evangelism means converting people to Christianity, as Will lifted up last week, is a misunderstanding of the original ideals. So let's delve back into the context within the Hebrew scriptures. The book of Isaiah, which we read this evening, can be split into three parts. The first chunk was written in the context before the fall of Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile. The second part was during the exile, and the third part at Israel's return from exile. So the part that we read tonight is within that middle part, what scholars would call second Isaiah, or that time during Babylonian exile. So let us imagine that dire situation of being removed from your homeland, the place where we believe that God resides, and hearing these words proclaimed from the messenger of God, the promise of return, the good news that God reigns, that God is bigger than the powers that have exiled you. The good news is not just an idea to be shared, it is a promised reality of literal freedom from captivity. That is good news. In his letter to the Romans, Paul quotes this part of Isaiah within his beliefs about Christian vocation. If people are to have faith that Jesus is the Messiah, which I take to mean from his passage, if people have faith that, the death, that death has been defeated and that the world can and will be a different place, God has to send people to bring this message to them. This is the proclamation that Will again lifted up last week, that Jesus is the Messiah, and it's not good news until it is communicated out loud to the people. According to N.T. Wright, Paul seems to understand the message concerning God's servant in Isaiah 52 as a message about Jesus, the Messiah. The people who announce the servant message are therefore the people who now proclaim Jesus. And for Paul, Christ, he believes, is already present among the people. The proclamation is not us saving the world because God has already done that. The proclamation is an invitation into a way of being community. This is how Paul sees his ministry fitting into the larger narrative of exile and restoration, of God fulfilling God's promise in the new covenant, which, remember, is also a Jewish concept, in Jesus as the Messiah and calling both Jews and Gentiles into the renewed community of faith that this freedom from captivity, that this new way of life is available to us all, isn't this also good news? What I think Paul is urging us to do as followers of Jesus is to take on a life of interior and exterior authenticity. It's not about our personal piety or about our yelling the right things on street corners. It's about reorienting ourselves to Christ. And this is one of the most central parts of Paul's missions. It's enlarging the circle of believers to not just Jews, but also to Gentiles. And this is what our faith can do. It can broaden our circle so that our focus is not on who is in and who is out, but on the one who claims, redeems, and loves. Verse 10 in this passage reminds us that this radical inclusion incorporates all who believe, however they express that belief. And we can start living this way now. Martha Highsmith writes that we who are made in the image of God are to be generous as well. Just as no one has a monopoly on the gracious abundance of God's love, so those who know that love in their very being are to ensure that others do too. She goes on to say that faith is an embodied reality. And in this passage, Paul speaks of lips and mouth and heart and feet. The way for us to communicate God's love is to embody it and to live it. Does Jesus really love me? 
yes, Jesus does, as we have been answering throughout this semester. And I know that in my life, this good news has made a world of difference because if Jesus loves me and all who I am, all of my faults and my failures, who doesn't Jesus love? And if I believe that Jesus' love extends beyond the boundaries that I have created, what does it look like for me to work towards loving all of those around me? This is the good news made manifest, that there is a God who loves us and there is a way for all of us to enter into that love, a love that is life-changing and world-changing. And we are not called to keep it to ourselves. We are called to share it because this life of abundant love can free us from the bonds that we have created. So let us extend that love to one another. Amen.